So my name's Josh, if I don't know you, and I've got the privilege of, of being the teaching pastor here, and I'm picking up for this first Sunday of Lent. Um, a bit of a theme that uh, we're going to see thread over the next five weeks, and it's a theme that comes to us from John's Gospel in the 12th chapter, and we can read it here very truly. I tell you, unless a kernel of wheat, some translations will say a seed, uh, some translations even say corn, uh, which is, uh, shows you something about uh, translation because uh, there was no corn where Jesus lived. Um, uh, you get the idea, though. It's, it's a long agricultural theme, isn't it? Something that grows, goes into the ground, a seed. Um, unless it goes into the ground and dies, it remains only a single seed. But if it dies, it produces many seeds or your translation might say, much fruit. Um, and uh, I want to tell you from the get-go, because uh, it might not seem like it at moments in this message, that this is a good news message. Uh, the good news I heard Jenny uh, proclaim during Donna's reading is that Jesus is tested in the passage that we've looked at this morning. And if you didn't pick it up, Jesus passes the test. So there is a test <laughs> uh, that the devil brings uh, to Jesus that the Holy Spirit um, allows him to go through. Uh, but Jesus passes the test. However, <laughs> we're reading this verse in the context of this season that Sherilyn's talked to us about, Lent. And um, I've put this passage as a bit of a thread to guide us because I think it's got a strong Lenten theme. And that is the theme of the fact that there is a kind of death involved in living the Jesus life. Once we uh, decide to be disciples of Jesus, we've got to wrestle with the fact that Jesus says hard things about what is going to be involved he talks about the need for us to take up our cross. We can't get away from this note in the sort of um, composition that is Scripture and particularly the New Testament, that there is some suffering involved, that there is very often some death involved unless a seed falls to the ground. I think about this man, I mean, amongst many other great saints who have known this only too well on the other side of glory because their lives have been taken from them, that there is often a kind of death involved in the following of Christ. So this is Dietrich Bonhoeffer, if you don't know who he was. He was a German pastor and theologian who resisted the Nazis during World War II and it cost him his life. He wrote a book called The Cost of Discipleship and he said this, the, cro the cross is laid on every Christian. The first Christ suffering which every person must experience is the call to abandon the attachments of this world, I hear. Um, the prophecies that came through this morning in that. It is the dying of the old man or old person which is the result of his or their encounter with Christ. As we embark upon discipleship, we surrender ourselves to Christ in union with his death. We give our lives to death 
Bonhoeffer says. Thus it begins, he goes on, the cross is not the terrible end to an otherwise God-fearing and happy life, but it meets us at the beginning of our communion with Christ. When Christ calls a person, he bids them come and die. It may be a death like that of the first disciples who had to leave home and work to follow him. Or it may be a death like Martin Luther's who had to leave the monastery and go into the world. But it is the same death every time. Death in Jesus Christ. Death of the old person or the old man at his call. I mean, challenging words, aren't they? And, and how do we line them up with the words of Jesus when he says things like, I have come to bring you life and life to the full, life abundant. Can we reconcile these two things? That's kind of where we're going this morning. But I've got to be honest, uh, because as Sharon mentioned, uh, we, we started um, on Wednesday doing a little bit of uh, a fast for the lead up to, um, to Easter. And um, I live in the, the same house as, as Cheryl, and so we talk about things. And on my mind, sometimes with four kids, it's not as often as it should be. Uh, but what's been on my mind this week is should we give up cheese? <laughs> and there's going to be some people in this room who go, never. And some people in this room who say, so what? I think about uh, Ben and Laura Hart. They gave up cheese for good, and maybe... Uh, that's really the grounding of how spiritual they actually are. <laughs> Giants in the faith, it's all about uh, saying it's no gooder. It's, it's all about saying... <laughs> I just came up with that then, would you believe? I didn't spend hours thinking about a cheese joke. Maybe I should have. Jeannie's got a few cheese jokes, yeah. Jeannie's been writing jokes, this is also on the side. My seven-year-old daughter... And they're really, they're pretty clever. Sometimes they're a little bit too clever for me. But uh, last week she told me one that she'd just come up with. We were driving in the car. She said, Dad, I've, got a, I've written a new joke for you. I said, hit me with it. She said, I used to tell Dad jokes, but then he died. <laughs> well, I, that's a great joke, but dark. And I'm your dad, so I don't know how to feel about that. <laughs> but you know should we should we give up cheese you might think yeah that's that's a reasonable proposition you might think that is the most ridiculous thing I've ever heard maybe a little bit like the conversation that Sharon brought us in on um, what I want to tell you uh, regardless of whether you think it's a good idea or something stupid uh, the passage that we're looking at the theme of the message this morning it is a good news message. It is a good news passage, this one about the 40 days that Jesus was tested and tempted in the wilderness. It's a good news passage because he passed the test. Why is it a good news message? Because he passed the test. This is a passage that is um, sometimes recognised as a new exodus passage. And um, if... You don't know what I'm talking about. That might be because you haven't heard me preach before because I bang on about this uh, probably 
every time this year. So one of the things that Matthew's gospel is really trying to draw our attention to, um, and it happens in the other gospels as well, is that Jesus is doing an Israel thing in this passage. Um, in Matthew 2.15, uh, so in the same gospel, but just before the passage that we've read, it says, uh, uh, where he stayed until the death of Herod, so this is um, Jesus and his family, and so fulfilled was what the Lord said through the prophet, out of Egypt I called my son. So Matthew is saying in the same way that the Old Testament talks about a son being called out of Egypt, Jesus, remember he had to hide from Herod in Egypt for a while, Jesus was called out of Egypt. So Jesus is doing something that was done first by the chosen people Israel that the Old Testament refers to as the Son of God. So Matthew 2.15 there is quoting Hosea 11.1 where it says, When Israel was my child, I loved him, and out of Egypt I called my son. The prophet Hosea is quoting there Exodus 4.22, which tells the story of the Hebrew slaves being emancipated from Egypt, being taken through the Red Sea and out into the wilderness on the way to the Promised Land. Exodus 4.22 says, Then say to Pharaoh, this is God to Moses, that is what the Lord said, Israel is my firstborn son. So Jesus is doing an Israeli kind of thing when he is fasting for 40 days in the wilderness. He is taken through the waters of baptism just before this story in the same way that those Hebrew slaves were taken through the waters out of slavery into a new destiny to head to the promised land. Jesus is baptised, you might remember, in Matthew by uh, John, John the Baptist. And John the Baptist has a crowd following him already. By the time Jesus is baptised, other people have been baptised by John the Baptist. Now, if you've heard me preach about this, you know why. If not, I'll just fill in the gaps for you because you don't necessarily get this at Sunday school. What John is doing, he's saying to the people, hey, if you've got some sort of sense that the promised land hasn't worked out how you expected it to work out, I am inviting you on a new exodus. I will take you in to the promised land because God wants to do something new. We might be living in Israel the geographical area that God has promised to us, but the fact that we're rotten, sort of stinking sinners so much of the time, the fact that we've got a Roman sort of empire uh, pushing us down, the fact that we've got corrupt religious and political leaders means that the promised land ain't the promised land. So, hear the Spirit of God call you to pass through these waters again so that you can come more fully into that which God has promised his people. So Jesus undergoes that crossing of the waters that the Hebrews uh, underwent many uh, centuries before. And it's a symbol to us. It's a symbol that the gospel writers are pointing out to us of Jesus now beginning to walk in that vocation that God really has for him, that ministry, that mission that he intends to complete through him. Not just that Israel would come fully into the promised land in the most profound sense, not just a geographical sense, but that all people and all creation could pass through into 
their eternal destiny, which is regeneration, redemption, salvation. You name uh, the, uh, the superlative there. Got that? Following that? I know that's a, a bit tech, but I think if we keep talking about it, it'll stick. So, um, Jesus passes through these waters as the Hebrews did when they fled Egypt. He moves into his destiny in God. Um, He passes through the waters of baptism. And then he goes, just as the Hebrews did, the new nation, the new people of Israel, through 40 years in the wilderness, Jesus goes into the wilderness for 40 days and 40 nights. When we read this passage, we see constantly throughout, if you take some time to, ha- to look at it closely, references to a particular part of the Old Testament around Deuteronomy 8 and the chapters a little bit before it. Deuteronomy 8.2 says, Remember how the Lord your God led you all the way in the wilderness these 40 years to humble and to test you in order, that you know, in order to know what was in your heart, whether or not you would keep his commandments there's a bit of a discussion going on in this text as people read it about whether it's truer to talk about it in terms of the temptation of Christ or the testing of Christ undoubtedly the devil is tempting Jesus in this story but I want to prompt us this morning just to think about uh, what's happening rather in terms of testing in the way that we just read about there in Deuteronomy 8. So the Lord God, and this is to the Hebrews, not to Jesus, led you in the wilderness for 40 years to humble and test you in order to know what is in your heart. To humble and test you in order to know what is in your heart. So I want you to think, at least for this morning, about what is going on in this passage in terms of the testing of Christ. It's worth saying that all of this is happening in the will of God. As we pick up at the beginning of uh, Matthew chapter 4, it talks about being Jesus being led by the Spirit into the wilderness. And in fact, the, um, the Greek there, the word for led, uh, is the same sort of word that they would use for a, a ship to set sail. So to depart on a journey. So there is uh, a sense in which we might picture the breath, the ruha of God, the spirit of God blowing Jesus out into the wilderness for what he's about to go through. 40 days and 40 nights of suffering, tempting, testing. But this is a good news story because why? Because Jesus passes the test. The Gospel of Matthew is endeavouring to make it clear to us that where Israel was so often an unfaithful son or child, Jesus is a faithful one. Jesus passes this test that Israel so often failed, um, which means unlike Israel, he goes on into the fullness of his vocation, his calling, his identity as the Messiah and saviour, the one who will announce the kingdom and enact it, the one who will eventually suffer and die for the sins of the world before being resurrected to new life, the one who makes a way for the renewal and regeneration and salvation of the world. That's good news, isn't it? That's good news. 
It's good news that Jesus passed the test. Now, um, what is he being tested of? I mentioned in uh, passing that Deuteronomy 8 talks about a testing of God's people in the wilderness to see what was in their heart. And I want to draw your attention to the fact that something similar is happening here. Excuse me while I mess with my pages here. What is being tested here is the nature of this special relationship that God has declared exists between he and the Son. Right, so as Jesus goes through the waters of baptism, you'll remember there was a sign and words from heaven, this is my Son in whom I am well pleased. And what Satan is doing in this story to a really significant degree that I want us to look at is he's prodding that relationship. So if God has said of this man that I'm coming to in the wilderness, that he is my son, in him I am well pleased, if there seems to be something cooking from God's perspective in this man, What's the state of this man's relationship back to the one he calls father, back to the one who has called him son? And we can see this, and uh, we'll be able to move fairly quickly through this, and this is really the crux of the message. Uh, We can't do all of this passage justice, so I just want to bring this point out to you. We can see this in the nature of the two tests that Satan brings before Jesus. Satan says, if you are the son of God, tell these stones to become bread. The good news is Jesus passed this test. I'll give um, kudos to anyone who can remember what Jesus says in response off the top of your head. So Satan says to Jesus, If you're the son of God, tell these stones to become bread. And what does Jesus say back? But you completed it, Jenny, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. (laughs) This is a reference, again, to Deuteronomy 8, 3, where it says, He humbled you, causing you to hunger, and then feeding you with manna, which neither you nor your ancestors had known, to teach you that man does not live on bread alone but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. So Jesus is doing Israel stuff here. Jesus' response to this second temptation, if you are the son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written, do not put the Lord your God to the test. Anyone know what Jesus says in response to this? Some of you got your Bibles open in front of you. It's a bit of a worry if you don't. Maybe it's a bit of a worry that I'm making you say something. Come on. What does Jesus say in response? Don't test the Lord your God. Thank you, Muriel. You can learn something if you give it enough uh, decades. Hey, Muriel, reading scripture. It's something will stick. There's hope for us all. Thanks, Muriel. So Jesus says, don't test the Lord your God. Where do you think this passage, like what do you think Jesus might be referring to here if we're going back to the Old Testament? Yes? Deuteronomy. 
Deuteronomy chapter 6, where it says, Do not put the Lord your God to the test as you did at Massa. So Jesus is doing Israel stuff here. What is the nature then of this test? What are we supposed to glean from this? Is there anything we can learn from this? Uh, the New Testament scholar R.T. France, who was, um, he was the principal of Wycliffe College at Oxford. We've seen in the last uh, couple of weeks that universities don't always have to be spiritually dead places, do we? Has anyone followed what's happened in, in Kentucky in Asbury the last couple of weeks? So R.T. France, a great evangelical Anglican, says this. Um, of the nature of the test that Jesus goes through here. The following tests do not cast doubt on Jesus' sort of family relationship with God, but they explore its possible implications. What is the appropriate way for God's son to behave in relation to his father? In what ways might he exploit the relationship to his own advantage? The actions suggested, France goes on, are ones which might be expected to put that relationship under strain. The devil, France says, is trying to drive a wedge between the newly declared son and his father. He's trying to drive a wedge. He's prodding and probing the relationship of father to son he's asking the question might be useful to think of in these terms does the son love the father in return does the son love the father in return this prompts a question for me that i wonder if you've ever grappled with what is the risk with unconditional love what is the risk with unconditional love. I think Satan's driving a wedge in here. Let's think about fathers and sons. Let's think about fathers who love their children unconditionally or any of us who love another unconditionally. I'm putting it out to the floor. What's the risk with it? It won't be returned. That it'll be... The benefits will be accepted but there will be no mutuality in it. Like the prodigal who says to his father, I'll take everything you've got to give me and I'm off. See, Satan knows. You know, I think it's, it's my position that God loves us all unconditionally and it lines up with the theology of our movement. I think you can sit in the pews here and, and think differently. That's, that's all right, but you might get a bit frustrated when I talk about the love of God in the way that I do. I think God loves each of us unconditionally. There's a wedge <laughs> that can be driven in there because we can take from God what suits us and never actually love him in return. So why then would we fast? to bring the wedge into view. I think that's come through in so much of what's been said this morning. I'm going to take just a couple of minutes and then I'm going to get the band up. Um, I'm going to take communion. Um, but I want to sort of 
land this in some research that was done by a sociologist in the early 2000s, a guy named um, Chris Smith, I believe. Christian Smith. So he um, and some fellow researchers, I think uh, he's at the University of Notre Dame, uh, undertook what they called the National Study of Youth and Religion. Some of you might have heard of this. And they interviewed over 3,000 American teenagers. The job of a sociologist is not to kind of assume what's going on, but to stand back and try and work out, you know, what's going on without kind of getting sucked into the the lingo that people are using. And they set these questions up to try and work out what it was that American teenagers believed. So many of the teenagers that they interviewed professed to be Christians. But Smith's research proposed that actually the religion that they most described to, whilst not a formal religion, could be described as this moralistic therapeutic deism or MTD, and these are uh, the answers that generally came back from these teenagers about what God was like. Firstly, it seemed that there was a widespread belief amongst American teenagers that there is a God who exists, who creates and orders the world and watches over human life on earth. That God wants people to be good, nice and fair to each other as taught in the Bible and by most world religions. That the central goal of life is to be happy and to feel good about ourselves. That God does not need to be particularly involved in our lives except for when God is needed to resolve a problem for us. And that good people die when they go to heaven. Now, you can see how you could arrive at maybe some of that by hanging around with Christians, but there's some really, really significant things missing from that little list of what religion's about, what God's expecting of us. For one, there's no mention of relationship, is there? There's nothing about being a child of God who's in a relationship that's reciprocal and mutual. And the other big thing that I see is that if we were moralistic, therapeutic deists, and I've got to tell you, some days of the week I am, I don't know about you, but some days of the week I am, we only involve God in our lives when there's a problem that we hope he can fix for us. You see the wedge. <laughs> you see the wedge there. Those things that we choose over God, often the benefits and blessings that come from God that we accept but don't really feel like we have any responsibility back to him. You know, this is a good news message. Jesus passed the test God loves each and every one of us as a child. The wedge is what separates those of us who actually act as a child of God and seek that relationship from those of us who might be tempted to treat God as a bit of an ATM in the sky 
the person that we talk to when things go wrong. And so I'll get the band up now. Thanks, team. I guess my question for us this morning, as we consider the weeks ahead on the journey to Easter, is what's the wedge for you? What's the wedge for you? I really liked the story that Sherilyn told me this week and you as well. Could be a wedge of Gouda <laughs> or Charles Berg. There's nothing wrong with good cheese, right? <laughs> I think God uh, would be impressed with cheese, is impressed with cheese. He might have dreamed about it before we discovered it. It's a good thing. There's actually nothing wrong with cheese. There's nothing wrong with so many of the things that might end up being the wedge for us. But the problem is, when we're using those things to fill a hole that's not our stomach. Just four days into a fast, Cheryl and I, giving some stuff up I'm kind of miserable <laughs> to be honest I'm dreaming about cheese maybe that's evident in how much I talked about it this morning but I love that story of hitting that wall in our day whatever you know stress anxiety boredom going to the fridge to cut a slice of Gilesburg and, re- and then realising actually not hungry for cheese (laughs) cheese ain't gonna fix what's going on in my heart at the moment nothing wrong with cheese this is a deeper thing in me and that is the benefit of fasting if you want to give it a go over the next few weeks in whatever way it doesn't have to be 40 days could be 40 minutes to be religious about that but to kind of say ah, I recognise this is a wedge for me when I'm bored I just get on the infinite scroll I'm just flicking through Instagram with no real purpose it's a distraction from what's going on in my life maybe you want, you're one of those people that's lucky enough in some ways that works that thing for you your career is meaningful enough, something's happening there for you, that you can run away from your problems or you can escape that emptiness or you can fill that hole some way by just thinking, if I just push my work forward this week, maybe we're watching our stocks and you know our investments. <laughs> maybe that's the thing for us. Just as, as long as those numbers are, are going up, that's a trick in this day and age, I'll tell you, but... You see what I'm saying, right? I mean, a lot of those things aren't bad things of themselves. But they're not the thing, are they? They're not necessarily going to be helping us to really know a God who loves us so much that he came as a little baby, lived a humble life, filled with suffering and he's so dedicated (laughs) to us and to the world 
to his grave for us. Under enormous torture, pain, brutal and unfair persecution. So can we have a think as we take communion this morning about what might be our wedge? (laughs) I reckon there's a good chance you know as you're looking at the week ahead of you what your version of opening the fridge is.